All right, so I'm really excited about this episode because obviously we've been talking about startups and you know hearing from a number of different you know, consultants, practice owners, uh, but one person or I guess group of people that we haven't really spoken with yet in this startup journey are orthodontists. And so that's where Dr. Min Nguyen joins us here today. And I'm super uh, stoked to to bring you on, man, because you have a really, I feel like, unique story and brand that you're building with your practice. So we're going to definitely share that with the audience. But before we uh, hop into our kind of startup discussion, would love for you, man, to just share a little bit about you know you and, and your background and kind of what has led you up to this point of starting your own practice. Yeah, sure thing. Um, I grew up in Northern Virginia. Uh, local guy just went to a bunch of schools in the Mid-Atlantic from JMU, VCU, Howard University, West Virginia. And what led up to probably the startup process was never really my intention uh, years ago with becoming an orthodontist. Uh, it was like most people that actually probably do startups. It's usually because there wasn't anything available for sale that like was like suitable for them. And acquisitions were, um, it just depend, it depends on what people's focuses were. When there's just nothing available, push come to shove, and I wanted something to call my own like as soon as possible. Well, through enough people with my financial planner, and he's like, hey, let's look into the startup route. Let's see where we go from there. And that was probably me in the middle of my second year of residency. And I went in and, okay, let's start doing the research, demographic studies, location, uh, get a general idea so that when residency is over, I can you know, get the process going. Um, and then we would have dived into that more, um, in this uh, podcast. Yeah. So, I mean, let's, let's start there. So this is happening while you're in orthodontic residency and you're already, you're kind of set on, on going the startup route. Is that right? Yeah, it was a uh, second year. I went ahead and just, uh, you know, I got referred over to a consulting company, um, ideal practices. Uh, I'm not paid by them or anything, uh, but they are great. Uh, walked me through the whole process, and I th thought it was a really, really great fit for me. Uh, and the more I studied into startups and uh, the benefits of it, despite not maybe not always having the immediate cash flow of a, you know, like a $1.2 million office of some acquisition, uh, there's lots of perks to it, uh, whether it's more brand-focused. Uh, you can really distinguish yourself a lot sooner. Uh, you can control your systems as far as uh, whether it's um, employees that are not a good fit. You won't have to like, you know, turn them over or anything like that. You can build it the way you want very organically. Um, but yeah, yeah, right in the middle of residency, I said, forget it. I'm just going to go, you know, all out and figure it out as, as we go along. Nice. And just so the audience knows, as we're recording this, you know, Min has his his office. It's it's being built literally uh, as we speak, and we're we're definitely gonna go through some of his experiences with that because it's always just uh, so fascinating to hear everybody's journey. But um, let's first thing let's start with this. So as you were starting to do, you know, that initial research, kind of figuring out, you know, uh, what direction you were gonna go. I feel like from what I hear from every um, dentist is, you know, getting started is the hardest point when it comes to an acquisition, whether it comes to a startup, whatever the case may be. Um, what is kind of that starting point that you have found um, is, is, you know, the best way to kind of get the ball rolling? Is it start with 
looking at demographics or potential areas that you want to live in or what what does that look like kind of just getting the you know thing going uh good question um i think the hardest part before you get into locations and demographics uh, i think every individual has to identify uh, what their actual specific goals are because what my goals are um and how i want to run a practice and how i want to build a practice or a brand is rather unique uh and can be completely different from someone else uh, there are very successful practices that i know of that say that are like 90 percent uh, state insurance practices and they do very high volume with a higher gross revenue or versus someone that may want like a more four chair boutique fee for service you know in selective ppo style practice um well with all that being aside I, I every individual has to identify what their goals are and whether it's more like for myself a uh, brand look uh, uh layout was very very important to me where others uh it's probably not a a big problem for them and they just want to have like a practice somewhere um so when i identified what i wanted uh that's when we looked at you know locations and demographics uh the patients that you want to serve is it um in the realm of what you are looking at and possibly wanting to live so if you decide to build this cosmetic veneers implant practice uh but you put it in a more heavy state insurance area, are you really going to be able to do the type of dentistry that you want to do in this area? Well, for me, I got fortunate enough and I was like, okay, the demographics checked out that uh, Percival, Virginia was just a great fit. It wasn't far from where I grew up. Uh, I've seen the place develop a lot in the past uh, few years, actually. Um, and it wasn't until a random drive a couple years ago that I'm like, okay, this area is completely different than what it was 20 years ago. It was before it was just the high school and trees that's all i knew it was for and i would only go there from the school bus for football games that would be about it uh, but now the town is completely different um the patients are great the whole community is great uh it's it's a good balance between um you know what i was looking for like the beginning of like a somewhat rural area but not too far from suburban and only about like an hour 10 minutes away from downtown dc so it was just a great fit for me all right so we're talking a little bit you know about you know, demographics. And one of the things that was interesting to me that you had mentioned is, you know, rather than just talking about population, um, some of the things that you discussed about, you know, being in a high state network insurance where you're maybe going to be more high volume versus maybe more of a private, you know, paying slash fee for service type setting. Um, what are some of those things that you're looking at or you advise other dentists to look at when they're looking at a demographic report? Because it sounds like it goes deeper than just looking at population and families, right? Uh, I'll do my best. I'm not a demographic studies. I, I, I don't even, this is my first adult anything. I don't even have a house. <laughs> <laughs> I took the business loan before everything else. Um, I think for orthodontists, um, you do have to kind of see what your current competitors are in this particular region. Um, the age of the other orthodontists in the area. Um, a, a general dentist doing Invisalign doesn't bother me too much because they're, they're only able to kind of market to those that are within like their own practice. And at least among my friends, they, they know their limitations. And every time I see them and uh, one's trying to be a referral partner over in Leesburg and they're like, oh, I'm only doing the easy cases. Like, don't worry, the other stuff, you can do it. And I'm like, hey, it's cool. Like, I'm not, um, 
know, I'm not too worried about that one. Uh, I think um, the demographics, I think the ratio that I learned was like one to 7,000. I know for general dentists, it was like one for every like 2,000 is like an ideal ratio. Uh, but one to 7,000, I think was like pretty good. Uh, and again, hopefully that 7,000, uh, I guess for me, this goes into identifying what kind of orthodontics then do you want to do? Do you want to do um, adult cases, multidisciplinary with a prosthodontist, periodontist? Uh, maybe you should be more urban environment. So like DC, you would have a lot more adult patients. Um, I like kids. Kid cases are, are more fun. I have a little more freedom as far as skeletal changes that I need to, or whether it being expansion or uh, uh, anterior, posterior appliances that can help you know, position the jaws and teeth a little bit better. Um, adult cases are, they can be fun, um, typically harder. Uh, you usually have to check up with uh, other disciplines to uh Make sure it's kind of squared away and everything's kosher before moving forward with those. And again, that all goes back to identifying what, what you're trying to look for. So the environment that worked for me was very, very family friendly. You know, what in their in your studies, like how many people are, um, you know, how many people are own their home, for instance, versus renting? How many people are, what's the average age of that population, I believe is pretty important. Um total retail sales. So you're looking at a little bit of disposable income for, for orthodontics. Unfortunately, we're kind of more on like the, um, there could be arguments between a, 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 a need standpoint and an aesthetic standpoint. Everybody always assumes that there's going to be like, Oh, it's just for aesthetics. Um, and then you're gonna have plenty of orthodontics that'll, that'll counter back and sure i'm sure i could always find a way to counter back at it but it does tend go to into be airway like the and all these other other sides yeah, of they're, it they're gonna there. look for they're gonna look for they're gonna fish for a bunch of stuff and i'm like mm-hmm. uh i'll, I'll kind of stick to like you know to what i know what i'm comfortable with um and all for me it was just like okay you're looking at now how many families are going to the area what are the trends um in this p- a particular region so are people tending to move towards that direction uh where i did my residency um like the biggest city was charleston um the the uh, population was actually migrating outwards over the past five six years so if someone was going to be brand new in charleston west virginia it, it could be a little bit of a struggle bus um so that one you might be looking to do more of an acquisition or partnering with somebody um so being able to see what the current trends are and what are your uh, projections going you know 10 years forward because um, you're going to be there for ideally 10 20 maybe 30 years at a time and don't look at just something that's like one two years away um like i guess i'm not a demographic studies expert uh but recalling back to what you know when i was looking at it for my location you know no that i mean that's a great summary and i think that's a big thing right there is looking at it from a macro perspective like thirty thousand foot view it's like yes this may be what you're seeing today but Nobody can make the proper projections 100%, but trying to project the best you can, population growth, who's leaving, you know, what what type of area is that our jobs coming there, those are all massive, and I, I think that was a, a really good point. Now, the next phase that you obviously kind of you know, get into um, that I, I'm fascinated with personally is on the financing side because – that's something, you know, when we work with practices, they, they already come to us and they pretty much, you know, they already have their financing in place and, you know, from there. But when you were looking at the proper, you know, bank to use for the financing side of it, 
what are some of the things that maybe you you look for? Do you have any advice for someone who who's going to that? And maybe they're starting by going to Bank of America or whoever it is. Um, what are some pointers maybe from from your uh, perspective? Uh, fortunately for me, as a little side hobby during residency, after five o'clock and not looking at Google Maps and trying to study where current practices were. Uh, I, I was trying to study the financial world as much as I could, mostly because I didn't ironically didn't trust financial planners. Everybody's trying to come through and, and sell you something and get you to buy some sort of insurance product that you may or may not need, or it could be written in a weird way. Uh, but through my studies, I think for um, uh, first thing, first things first, your bank loan is absolutely the gatekeeper to everything without money. You could have the best demographic study. You could find the best piece of real estate. You could you could have the most beautiful logo in the world. It doesn't matter unless you have money. Um, do not pay cash for it. You have no incentives for working and for a million dollars in labor, paying taxes, so it'd be half, and then you have a half million dollars, and you're just gonna turn it all over to paying all the vendors. Um, for for your people like myself, where we have lots of student loan debt, is usually the biggest um, hurdle that people don't understand. Uh, believe it or not, when you work with a certified student loan planner, which I do know some, and be happy to help you out, uh, you have to keep your payments really, really low, or you have to at least have some level of understanding of how the student loan repayment is paid back. Uh, so if you keep your payments really, really low, the bank only cares about what are you servicing every single month towards not just your student loans, but all of your debt? So if you have a really bad uh, credit score, you have lots of like credit card debt, you've already purchased, let's say, a million dollar house in less than a year out of residency and maybe like a BMW or a Mercedes. You have lots of monthly expenses that are going out the door. The bank only cares about after all of those things are paid, what's left back for them. So if you keep those expenses at a very, very minimum, you should be eligible on just your name alone to be eligible for any bank loan. So whether it's uh, probably Bank of America and Provide are probably the two largest um, uh, banks where they're dental specific for any acquisition or a startup. Um, and that's without any collateral. Uh, the hardest part usually as a young provider is to save up as much cash as you can. And that cash is is in non-retirement assets. So you can't have like, you can't count your 401k and um, your, your Roth IRA accounts. But how much not, how much liquidity do you have? That's not necessarily a down payment towards this loan like you're purchasing at home. It's just showing the bank that you're a good saver, you're responsible with money, and you have this pool of money should this cash reserve essentially where if you needed to pull something to live off of, you can live off of this reserve and still service the bank loan. And that's really what they're going to care about mostly. So, you know, you can have someone with over half a million dollars in student loan debt or no student loan debt, but the person with no student loan debt, if they have no cash on them, they will never get the funding. So that's probably the hardest part. And it's just for, I'd recommend for new grads, just live a little bit poor, a little bit longer just to stash away your cash. You don't know if you want to be an owner or when. Because a lot of times people say they don't want to be an owner. And then like two years later, they're like, oh, I'm tired of this practice. And they do. Well, if you're not in a financial position to get that bank loan, you can't get anything else. Um, 
as far as interest rates right now, when I got mine, it was really, really good. That might not be the only thing you want to look for. You probably want to definitely look for more like relationships. Uh, how well do you get along with the, the lender? Um, how flexible are they? Because they're going to know how much construction is going to cost on a national standpoint. They're going to know how much you should be spending for X, Y, and Z, and how much should you be spending on rent, and how much will they even allow you to spend on rent. Um, and being able to work with someone that knows how to keep vendors accountable before they can get paid, particularly the contractor. So it keeps everybody honest amongst each other um, just to make it a smooth process. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like you said, it's, it's a true partner with everything that you're you know, finding there. It starts with, with the bank. And I was curious um, because that's the, the thing that I see get posted in a lot of the dental groups as I'm looking to a startup, but you know, I've got, you know, X amount of hundreds of thousands of dollars in student loan debt. And they automatically assume because they have that student loan debt that they're not going to be able to get a, a loan. But from everything that I've heard and, and then what you just said too, it's like that is not necessarily the case. It's like you said, being able to show that you can save, you can be responsible you know, with your with your money. And, and that's the main thing. Because I think they're expecting you're going to have student loan debt, right? Like it's kind of Correct. expected at this point. Yeah. Yeah. No, oh, yeah. Very yeah, cool. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, one thing I want to really talk about, too, is with in orthodontists specifically, and I'm just curious how you've, um, you know, seen this, but are there any things that are different from being an orthodontist in a startup environment versus like maybe some friends of yours or general dentists? Um, have there been any things that just in conversation or anything that you've talked about? I'm just curious and have no idea if there is, but I, I would think there would be some some differences there. Um, I haven't had many discussions. I'm, I'm probably one of the, uh, I mostly, I'm mostly in the orthodontic world right now. So most of my friends are orthodontist, uh, you know, in different stages of our career. Uh, but from the few, uh, dental classmates that I've seen there doing their startups, um, I think from a, a patient acquisition standpoint is really different where I'm, I'm trying to go to like PTO meetings and try to volunteer at schools. And I have a very specific demographic that I'm trying to target where a general dentist, typically when you're a startup, unless you really just don't want to do like any sort of you know bread and butter dentistry, you you'll take anybody that comes through that can afford you and your services. So you're marketing to the general public where for me, I would, I'm really focused on like a specific age range, like teenagers, uh, moms that want kids taken care of. And that's my main uh, demographic that I like to focus on. Uh, from, so from that standpoint, it's a little bit different. Uh, I think GP, you could probably grow a little quicker because the cash flow wise, uh, whether it's fee for service or, or PPO, you collect the money for your services, what, what, let's say max, let's say a month out, where for a, an orthodontist, in order for it to scale, you have to hit that two-year mark to get the full collections on a case start. Let's, let's say it was five or $6,000. You're not going to get all that money until 24 months later. Usually, once you hit that two-year mark for a lot of practices, then it's usually a lot more self-sustaining. Then you can scale it a lot more with whatever way you want and expand, whether it's marketing or um, more chairs and, and growth and whatnot. Um, One thing with, with orthodontists that you know we love in particular from the marketing side of things is 
it's it's pretty easy to calculate your like because you just calculate your average start pretty much right i mean if, if you really boil it down whereas a you know gp it's like you have so many different you know types of patients to average it out where you might have somebody who needs a lot of restorative work or cosmetic work and then you have those others who come in for their cleanings and they're fine you know they don't they don't have anything else but from a like marketing and finding out what your cost per you know, new patient is or new start is it, I feel like it makes it easier to scale up because as you get going along, um, as you've been open for three months, six months, a year and so on, you know, if you figure out between the time that you invest at the PTO meetings or volunteering and any maybe digital ads that you're running. And if you see, okay, you know, it costs me $350 or $400 to get up, you know, on average $5,000 start it makes that like scaling process a lot more predictable, I guess, is, is the best way to to, deter, to say that. So that's something that I do like from a just orthodontics side of it. It's, you pretty much, it sim- simplifies the treatment down to a start. <laughs> yes, essentially. Yeah, I agree. For me, um, that was one extra perk that was an unintended consequence when I went to orthodontics the being able to have your cash flow is very predictable per person that comes through there's going to be a on average like 99 percent of the time a minimum that you will collect and bill for versus someone that just comes in twice a year for their hygiene visits which is fine too um yeah so it's like when you know your return on investment whether it's pay-per-click with google social media ads there's some sort of like more predictable form of return that you can calculate a lot easier per head that comes through. Yeah, hundred percent. And at the end of the day, you know, it's, it's a business. And, um, while you're in healthcare, you know, you still have to know, know your numbers. And, you know, I found that as a you know, business owner myself, just kind of growing over time. It's like, you may think, you know, your numbers when you're guesstimating, but unless you actually put pen to paper, these are the hard numbers for what it is to acquire a new patient or, whatever that what here's what your overhead is and as you scale your overhead starts to shrink typically and these are different factors and and knobs that you're kind of totally adjusting it all the time but it's very important i think everybody listening to this you know your numbers get really um obsessed with knowing what those are so then you know you know where to improve where to scale up so that kind of leads me to my next question which is the fun part this is brand and let me tell you to everybody listening you know men has a awesome brand and in, in my opinion that he's developing um and part of it is because of the the story behind it and how you've drawn in your personal interest to it so i want you to share with your startup personally the name of your startup kind of how it came about and yeah just share that with the audience and then we'll dive into a little bit behind the branding I'll try not to ramble too much on on how that goes about. I'll try to keep it somewhat condensed. Um, I mean, we've talked, you know, lots of times about it as it was, we were kind of building it out. Um, but no, I, little plug, little Excelsior Orthodontics is the name of the business. Um, I when I was thinking of brand names, that's where it kind of has to start. I one I didn't want to use my last name. Uh, my last name is Nguyen. It's the most popular last name and it's going to be up there with park and lee and kim's with koreans it'll be there with johnson's and smith's patel (laughs) uh, yeah patel's with indians it's going to be up there so my name's not going to be very memorable so good luck finding it if you google it and whatever the business is um so one not my last name not very distinguished or memorable 
Uh, two, from a, a wealth building standpoint, it's very difficult to sell someone's last name. So unless your last name happens to be like Nordstrom or uh, Gucci, those people have that they, they relied on their last name to build you know a clothing brand or Tom Ford. That's a different story. I'll buy Tom Ford if someone gave me the money for it. I'll do it. Um, I was gonna say if somebody so gives I'm, me the money to buy Tom Ford, I sure will. Yeah, we're but in. I'm not you paying for it with my together. own money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Forget it. We'll we'll finance it together. We'll we'll find our <laughs> bank loan to do that one. Yeah. Um, so I had to think of something that was memorable. Like, you know, do I go based on location? Um, is that memorable? Well, does it fit what I what I want? Uh, whether it's like Western Loudoun Orthodontics or Loudoun Valley Orthodontics. Um, uh, and when I was like, oh, then one night I always remembered um, uh, it was a Stanley uh, who may he rest in peace, uh, the founder of like Marvel and all of his work. Um, and it was also started with the movie Silver Linings Playbook, where they kept saying the word Excelsior and, you know. Uh, I was like, okay, I had to look up what the meaning was, and it was Latin forever upward. So one night with you know my fiance, after five o'clock, I spent five, six hours, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I should go with Excelsior. So I spent five, six hours straight just putting random words together, Eagle Stone, West Ridge, some something that kind of flows all together, only to conclude, I'm like, I just Googled Excelsior Orthodontics, and it didn't exist, and I'm like, well, I'm kind of dumb. Like, why am I looking up like different languages and trying to find what the special meaning was? I'm like, well, this is already pretty cool sounding already. It, it's a good fit. It's a fun little Easter egg. I usually get around one out of 10 people will pick up that, you know, it's actually Stanley's personal slogan. So that's the fun part about it. Um, and at the same time, the way it flows and it sounds unique, a little hard to spell when people first see it. Um, but yeah, Excelsior, it just, uh, it, it kind of fits a lot of, my life and my fiance's life, who's going to be an orthodontist. She's going to start residency. Actually, I don't know if I told you, she's going to start in July over at West Virginia, where I did my training. So in three years, she'll be, she'll be out and be an orthodontist as well. So I decided to build this thing together. Um, all the colors and what I have right now, uh, if you don't mind me sharing more, no, all please. of that stuff was, a, was a little on accident. Um, let's start with like, I'll start with the logo. Um, just, I would do the, the first thing I would do is just look at what brands do I like the most. Um, so it was like Apple was up there. Nordstrom was up there. Nike is up there. Costco is up there. Um, with typefaces and fonts, what makes certain brands stand out? Um, so then I had to Google, literally, I researched what made a good logo. And it was actually based on uh, Sagi Kaviv, a little free plug for him, not that he really needs it. He is part of the like huge group uh, from New York where they created the NBC logo, National Geographic, Animal Planet, um, Showtime. And he gives these three basic rules that I decided, okay, I'm going to follow these rules. Let's stick with it and let's see how well it works. Um, simple. Uh, you can should be able to draw it on a napkin. Uh, distinguishable, which helps makes it memorable. Um, and scalable. Uh, can you make it large? In the digital world now, yeah, there are certain, you know, when you make your logo, are you trying to make it something really, really pretty piece of artwork? Or do you want something that's actually an icon that people can identify with? And in this world, you need your logo to be able to be scaled to be on the side of a billboard or a building one day. But you also need to make it small enough to fit on like a little tiny icon as people are scrolling through it. 
um, just ran those things, you know, fit those rules. And then um, as far as fonts, again, I could go on and on about this. Um, I would recommend in general, even if you are a pediatric office trying to appeal to kids, I would try to stick with a sans serif fonts. A lot of the luxury brands have turned away from um, serif fonts like Times New Roman and whatnot and over to more bold face sans serif fonts where it's more clean like Helvetica and whatnot. Um, because from a scalability standpoint and application standpoint, it's much easier to put in something really, really small and also really, really large um, as people scroll as most of your websites are going to be mobile when they search you, it's easier to read that and that sort of typeface. And a lot of the luxury brands are actually switching over to a more like Burberry is one. Um, St. Laurent has sans serif fonts. Um, the only one that's kind of like stayed is like Tiffany and co and Louis Vuitton, for instance, um, those stayed more on a serif based, uh, typeface. That's just the logo alone. Um, yeah. the colors, I don't know if you want me to keep going more. Yeah, no. Well, and then talk about, yeah, the, with the, the color choice and kind of from a, you know, pr your perspective, how are you going through in your mind what the colors should be? Because that's sure. such an important part of everything from inside the practice, outside the practice and how you're recognized. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the color, uh, this all kind of, you can imagine kind of like my life, it's just kind of developed accidentally. Uh, it wasn't until, um, me and my fiance uh, were shopping for wedding bands and we walked into, we were at King of Prussia mall and we walked into a Tiffany and co store and I just looked around, I see the packaging and everything. And I'm like, okay, you know, Excelsior and the way the type font is, is, is more on the masculine side of things, the color Tiffany blue. And I was like, okay, well, this is a touch more feminine. And yet a guy coming in here is not very unusual. And it's not socially awkward. So, and we just finished a trip over at Banff in Canada in which Lake Moraine was basically like the same color. And we're like, hey, this is a nice little fun story where we'll use the Lake Moraine as like our inspiration to create this blue color. And but um, ultimately the blue combined with neutral colors, we wanted something more timeless was really our main focus. Uh, so like Apple was probably the biggest driving force of that. Uh, Nike is actually rather neutral, but yet, to my my opinion, their color that you I remember of them is actually orange. Same. Even though it's like you you don't always pick up on it, but it is. And it's like, oh, okay, what can we use as a nice little accent that's somewhat memorable? And we'll just stick with it, keep it really really simple. And we just chose like the closest we can to like Tiffany blue. Wow. So I mean, everybody listening to this, like, think about the story that goes behind everything here, from the name of the practice to the the logo design to the colors. Like, you know, we don't expect you know everybody to be you know brand experts or by any means, but it's like think of for you personally, you know, what is that kind of journey that you know your brand takes you on when you are developing it? Because that's something that. You may think, oh, patients aren't really going to care, but if you really live by some of these things and your core values and the way that you hire people on your team, the way that your team acts, all of these things do blend together. And as we are now, I'm a millennial. I don't know if you are you know, as well, man, but yeah, technically I am. You know, I'm a millennial. And so there's so much research out there that shows that 
millennials who are I think now the biggest you know buyers you know in the in the world um, they care a lot about companies missions their stories like all of these things that we're talking about like these are things that a lot of millennials look at when they are choosing their orthodontist or choosing you know a massage therapist or whatever the case is and we we may do it subconsciously as well and so it's something that you know these things sometimes i think on the surface level people be like oh let's just go to you know fiverr.com pay somebody five dollars to design me a logo it's like yeah you can get one that way but you know this is really you know something for 10 20 30 years like men said you know you you need something you're proud of and that you can you know really i guess connect with so yeah, yeah. Having something that can just stand the test of time, when you're when you're fabricating, try not to. In my opinion, don't follow too much of any trends or some new crazy new font. Uh, just something that's really timeless, uh, where it could be applicable. So even if you had to change your business structure and model and and target demographic, it can still relate to whether it's kids, adults, and that's kind of like where we went with that approach. Um, something that if we had to change our I pivot in different roles and different positions that we could. Um, but yeah, just something that's timeless is just, you know, what we really, really liked. Um, what we hope to be around for a long time. Yeah, no, I, I love the process that, that you went through with that. Now, one of the things that I kind of want to um, end on is, you know, everybody who's done a startup uh, or even an acquisition, you know, I always hear of, you know, here are some of the, you know, things that I would tell somebody else, um, you know, is on that, if they were going on that journey, you know, here's, here's a few of those things. I, one thing I want to drive home, um, with our audience here, cause men, I think you can back this up is you don't have to go at it, you know, go on this journey alone. Like it, nobody expects you to know what you don't know. And I know that you, I'm sure I've gotten you know uh, advice and help from you know mentors, maybe vendors, whatever the case is. But do you want to maybe talk to that a little bit of as far as if somebody's looking at doing you know a startup practice, wh- what are some things that they should look to uh, as resources, or what are maybe some of the things that they should look to potentially avoid some of those common pitfalls that that maybe you've seen or you know maybe even experienced. Um, that's a good question. Uh, cause I, I'm not even open yet. So I'm trying, I haven't yet to see the, the benefits of it. Cause right now I'm just like, so focused on construction, but at least the process is going, uh, ultimately if someone is even contemplating a startup, uh, rule number one, you can never start too early. Um, the average project, if, if things go perfectly, that means like, there's no hiccups in your letter of intent for a space. There's no hiccups in your lease negotiation with the attorneys and construction is perfect. You could be open in 12 months from the time that you even say, yeah, you found a spot. Let's assume the demographics are done and you're happy with that area. Um, yeah, but it's not unusual to go 24 months because real estate's going to be the, the longest process. Uh, it's, you're not renting an apartment. You're, you're doing a 10 year term lease with like maybe at least one or two, five year renewals. It's a brick and mortar space that you're going to be taking, uh, start the process early. Even if you don't think you are clinically ready by the time you are actually open, you should be fine. Even that's including any new grad, uh, I, well, for the orthodontic world, I say, start it 
don't wait too long after residency to really start thinking about it and like mentally, you know, say, hey, I'm going to focus on a startup because uh, it'll be about two years before they're actually open. So by the time you have that one year of experience, you're like, oh, OK, I've kind of I know what I know and I'm ready to go off on my own. Uh, things, some resources to look out for. Um, uh, contact people like you, for instance, start with that, or you're involved in lots of startups and you've seen, you'll have your opinions on some things that worked and some things that didn't work for, for certain offices. And you, you've seen plenty of spaces and, and just general looks overall of different, uh, businesses. It's like, oh, okay, that, that kind of fits. And this one works a little bit better. Uh, speak to as many consultants as possible. Um, uh, you know, ideal practices was a great fit for me. Uh, they have, you know, you're not just hiring one person, but you're hiring a group of people and each individual person is a specialist of their particular field. Uh, but there's lots of other consultants as well that uh, do lots of startups. Um, when you have someone that you can align with, particularly someone that's done this multiple times and where startups are not unusual for them, they've already seen tons of mistakes or they might have even, you know, done the mistakes themselves for one project they won't necessarily tell you that but they'll try to try to veer you away from it um you'll have a a, a plethora of teams if you can um i do highly recommend uh dental specific um team members a dental specific marketing company for one that yeah you could go on fiverr i don't recommend it you want to have a full conversation about like what your ultimate goals are and what kind of practice you want to build um, have a dental specific realtor, attorney, um, interior designer, an architect, people that have done this multiple times where it's not unusual for them. If you were going to get a heart surgery, you don't want someone that's only done maybe like two heart surgeries in their life. You want someone that does this for a living, like as like from a regular basis. Um, and all of them will have their own context as well of people to talk to. Uh, I think talking also to people that have already done startups um, from different career standpoints, someone that is one year out uh, in the middle of construction, five years out, 10 years out. At what point did they get like their return where it was more self-sustaining, I think is a great idea. And if you can actually, if you have the time for it, study different demographics of different offices because and try to find, try to focus on the one that you think is most fit. So a lot of my friends actually don't want to come out to where I am. They don't actually don't want to live there. Um, it's quieter. It's more family focused where a lot of my friends, they want to go to like Arlington, Alexandria. A friend of mine just like built a brand new office out in Alexandria. I'm like, great for them. I had no desire to go out there. Um, so um, I think also planning out, I guess for the last one, uh, I got this advice from another orthodontist actually. She said, think about your life um, 10, 15 years from now. Don't think about it what it is next year when you're 26 years old and you can go to K Street or something, get Ruth's Chris like every single night or you can just go out and do whatever you want. But think like if you plan on having the suburban family lifestyle, start planning it that way in the very beginning. Uh, you know, don't don't put yourself on 18th Street. That's it, not really the ideal place to have a child and raise a family, you know, so position yourself in a place that's going to be more family friendly. Cause once I don't have any kids right now, but I believe you do Shane, uh, your, your life is really, really different. It's no longer your life. It's really about them. And then as this orthodontist told me, her life was 
uh, office, PTO meetings, Saturday baseball games. She has plenty of money to do Ruth's Chris every night and eat out. But with four kids, she's like, I'm not doing that. Like, this is my life right now. She has more money than, than she probably ever imagined. And she's like, no, this is my life. Like, think of it that way. Um, so always plan with the end in mind that, you know, you're going to grow out of that going out phase at some point, hopefully. Uh, and if, if the family life is what's for you and that's what it is for, for us, um, that's what you just planned on from the very beginning. Yeah, man, that's really solid advice because we're in a world today where everything's today, 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 or very instant, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very uh, difficult to think sometimes about the future and who will I be, who do I want to be? And I always, uh, a mentor of mine always told me, he said, you know, you be yourself, but you also want to become the person you envision yourself being 10 years from now. And that was always really powerful to me because we're always told be yourself, be yourself, be yourself, which you want to be yourself. Like, don't, you know, don't get that wrong, but you also want to become an ideal person in your head too, right? Like there's something you want to be in. For me, you know, that was a dad and being, you know, a, a family guy that, you know, 10 years ago, that, that wasn't me, but that was what, what I knew I wanted to become. So I think that that's just as important as when you're setting up your location, be thinking about that, you know, who, you know, who do you want to become and make sure that's aligning with, you know, location and, and demographics of, of where your practice is. One last thing I wanted to ask, just because I think that we get um, so much in our, in our little silos every single day, you know, we work hard and, and dentistry and, you know, dental marketing even can be exhausting some, sometimes by the weekend, we're just like, ah, uh. but, um, I want to ask, you know, do you have, you know, a mentor or any mentors, or do you recommend that dentists, um, you know, look for a mentor, um, and how valuable, I guess, have you seen that? And it just reminded me when you were talking to this orthodontist, um, you know, it's like getting advice from somebody who's been there, done that. So I'm just curious if you, if you have one and, and what your thoughts are on that. Um, I have two. Uh, one was actually my orthodontist. Um, I had I was a four bicuspid extraction case when I was a teenager, and I actually didn't meet him again until like, I guess I'll say, fifteen years later when I was in dental school and he was a faculty. Wow. I had no intention of being an orthodontist when I started dental school, but um, I talked mostly uh, as Doctor Vu over at Howard University. Um, uh, he was trained up in UConn in the eighties under like one of the best biomechanical experts ever. Um, I forgot his name. I really should know that name. I read his book, <laughs> but anyways, yeah, he's one. I, I talk a lot about, uh, uh, clinical cases and mechanics with him. Uh, probably the one that is most influential for me is actually out in West Virginia in residency. It was, uh, Dr. Ronnie Sparks at Sparks Family Orthodontics in Charleston, West Virginia. Uh, he's probably, I'll say 90%. Uh, influence uh, on on how I do things from a clinical standpoint, uh, business standpoint. Uh, he's a one doctor, two location practice. Um, I, I've yet to meet very few people are, are, are excellent combination of clinical skills and business skills and understanding the financial world. And um, he always said I, uh, that I reminded a lot of him. Um, I know I know more about the financial world at my point in my career, way more than he did. He kind of learned it with the School of Hard Knocks. Um, but he's probably one of the few amazing orthodontists that, like, the orthodontic world has no idea he 
exists. Uh, his his clinical skills like superb, and then combined with his meticulousness of um, his his books basically are just very very clean and organized. And um, we we took him out to dinner uh, myself and the financial company just to pick his brain a little bit. And uh, my financial company they were they were really really skeptical as far as like okay how 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 is it possible this guy knows his stuff? And they picked his brain. And at the end of dinner, they were just like. Hey, no wonder you know as much as you do about finances. I mean, I get to work with him for like three years straight. And then it's like, okay, no wonder he had, you know, Min had such a great foundation to like veer off on his own to like study his own thing. But yeah, Ronnie Sparks, Sparks Family Orthodontics um, is wonderful. Uh, look forward to hopefully seeing him soon again. That's, that's awesome. Yeah, man. It's having the right mentor, having somebody like that who can kind of teach you the ropes and, and be there for you throughout your entire journey um, is, is super important. And a lot of people, uh, you know, don't, don't get one because uh, maybe they're afraid they're going to you know be bothering that person or something. But in my opinion, what I have found is a lot of people are, are honored to be able to kind of guide someone and who was in a similar situation as them. So, you know, don't be afraid if there's somebody that you kind of look up to in the field, in your community, uh, you know, maybe reach out and offer to take them out to dinner and, you know, pick their brain. Um, I think yeah, that's I, ultimately I, super beneficial. Yeah. I think older dentists and orthodontists, everyone that's like a senior, they, they get their ego stroked a little bit when they know that someone looks up to them in, you know, subconscious fashion or form. And if everyone likes to talk about themselves, <laughs> so if you just ask them, how did they start? You know, how did you grow to be so big? And then, oh, how are they doing this? How are they doing that? They're more than happy to, to share it with you. Um, and, and people are actually probably more welcoming to helping others that of a, the next generation, uh, more than the other way around. Everybody's just always very helpful to help out one another, especially in the dental world or really in probably in most careers, as long as the person asking is very, you know, I think sincere and motivated. Um, yeah. the person giving the advice can feel that, read it and is more than happy to give. Man, this was an awesome uh, conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. And if anybody's like listening to this and maybe they want to reach out and ask you a couple of questions, you know, maybe they're going through the same process. Uh, what's the best way for you know, people to, to get a hold of you? Uh, you could probably just shoot me an email. This is Dr. Min, D-R-M-I-N-H at um, ExcelsiorOrthodontics.com. That simple. And we'll have that in the show notes in case you do need help spelling it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people are welcome to uh, email me anytime. I try to get around to checking it. And whether it's startup process, acquisition, finances, student loans is probably the most popular one where people reach out to me the most um, that I help out with. Uh, I'm more than happy to, to help out anybody anytime. And one thing, you, you have a podcast. We need to maybe mention this really quickly here. Uh, yeah, we just started our own throw. So it's, um, full disclosure, it's sponsored by CFS dental division. We have 14,000 clients all across the country in some way, fashion, shape or form, whether it's an insurance product, uh, or full on retainer fee only fiduciary uh, business and which the owner was like, Hey, uh, let's create a podcast. And I'm like, okay, let's, I don't know how to do that, but we're going to figure it out. Uh, it's called dental dummies. Uh, you can catch us full episodes on YouTube and uh, short-term content um, by request uh, on Instagram. This is uh, so YouTube would just be youtube.com slash at dental dummies and Instagram would be at dental dummies podcast. Awesome. 
Thank you so much, man, for sharing this with our with our audience. I'm excited to watch your journey. Uh, we've I just feel like you know uh, hit it off from the time you know we first chatted, and I'm I'm excited to to watch your journey, watch your success, and thank you for hopping on here and sharing with our audience. No, thanks for having me on the show, Shane. Yeah, we'll talk soon for sure.